0: This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. to Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where I invite a friend to watch a blockbuster, cult favorite, or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch the movie, my guest will decide if it was Better Late, that they've been missing out by not having seen the film, or never. The movie didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by my friend Will, and we are discussing a movie he has never seen before, Alien, from 1979. Will, Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. So, you've never seen Alien. Never seen it. How did that happen? You know, it's because
1: it had to make it through a bunch of filters. It's kind of crazy, right? Because it's like, first of all, I never saw it as a kid. You know, I think a lot of people maybe had it on video or saw it at a friend's house. Part of this is I grew up in large part on rural Vermont without a TV. So I missed out a lot of stuff the first time through. That'll do it. But then you know, during my nerdy teenage years, where I was catching up on cinema and obsessed with movies, it just kind of never made it there. You know, I think that there's a certain movies that because maybe friends of yours have seen and talk about, and they really like it in a kind of annoying way. There's uh, yeah. a lot of stuff like that, I think, out yeah. there. Oh, so people were too
0: into Alien.
1: I don't know if it was Alien specifically, but I think maybe there was just part of me that because I had kind of missed out on a lot of those, you know, at the time, block, block like I didn't see Star Wars till later in life either. Okay. Um, So I guess that was part of it. But then, you know, I worked at a video store for two years. And you still haven't seen Alien. And we had movies running all the time. To- all the time. So it's like, yeah, somehow it made it through all those filters I will say I have seen, I think, parts of the movie. I think that I've seen scenes here and there on TV, but I couldn't tell you if it was Alien or Aliens or, you know, something else that was kind of... Alien
0: Resurrection.
1: Yeah, although that I think was late enough that I might be able to... (laughs) ID it. ID it. I feel like there's a lot of movies that, or just things in general in popular culture that maybe you missed out on, but especially if you're like me and you kind of grew up on like Simpsons and Mad Magazine and stuff like that, you kind of pick up on the references through the ether and it almost feels like you get the references even though you haven't seen the actual source ever.
0: Oh, definitely. That's kind of like what I'm trying to explore here, you know? Like how much are you going to recognize even though you haven't seen it? simpsons especially i think is good for that absolutely yeah and then you know the naked gun movies and oh my god yeah, yeah. i don't know if i'd have expected alien to be on in the video store because there's you know some violence in it mm. but um they like your coworkers never found out about this and Flipped out and made you watch it here's the thing i probably just never admitted it it's probably been a
1: dirty little secret (laughs) Uh, so i'm here uh, this is this is a confession really here just getting started with a confessional i've never seen this movie i've never seen the sequel aliens oh my god i've always felt it was kind of cheating to just name the sequel the plural of the first one but
0: It makes it really difficult when you're talking about it, when, you know, like, so have you seen Alien or Aliens? And they're like, what do you mean, Alien 2? Like, it always requires that little extra follow-up to make sure they understand you. Right. I mean, was that the first movie to do that? Probably. Have any other movies done that? I can't think of it. Well, Predators. Predators. Recently. Here's a question. Have you seen Predator? Oh, sure. Yeah, I've seen Predator. But you haven't seen Predators. No, I didn't know Predators existed. Yeah, it does. And you see how awkward that is. Yes. With the S. Yeah.
1: Well, there's the prequel Heather, I think.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. People argue over which one's better. Um, We also, along those lines, recently had the debate of which was the first movie to do the uh, X3D Mm. naming convention. Yes. We... Suspect it might be Jaws, because there's a Jaws 3D, the one at SeaWorld, but we're not sure yet. Uh, And I have done absolutely nothing to follow up on it, so that's my fault. All right, so you haven't seen Alien, you haven't seen Aliens, and you haven't seen any of the other sequels. Correct. You've seen Predator. Yes. Have you seen Alien versus Predator? I've
1: not. I've not, because that's the thing. Because I've never seen Alien, I have avoided seeing anything in the canon
0: fair fair enough fair enough. and i'm assuming this also goes for like prometheus and the alien covenant yes correct okay okay. well that being the case i'm gonna let you do your predictions but i have a few questions that i want to make sure i get okay number one do you know what the monster is i think it's an alien do you have any idea of what it looks like yes yeah all right that's that one's easy what is the monster called it's called The Alien. That is correct. And it does have an, a canonical name, and it actually it comes up in Aliens, which we're not covering today, so I'm just going to blow it for you. In the series, they call it a Xenomorph.
1: I, I think I've heard that term, yeah, okay. but I didn't know what the origin was, okay?
0: Yeah, I wouldn't have spoiled that, but we're not covering that. T- you're not going to find it out today, so I'm going to spoil it for you in case you ever come back to do Aliens. Who's in this movie? All right. So this I have a lot
1: of thoughts about. Okay. Because and in, uh, in thinking about this, I realized how little I actually know about the movie Alien. Okay. Less than actually I thought I did. So I'm 80% sure this movie stars Sigourney Weaver. Okay. But if you were to tell me incredulously that it stars Susan Sarandon, I would believe you.
0: Okay. I would not believe Meryl Streep. Um, I'm not going to say one way or another if Meryl Streep is in this but you'll find out Susan, soon enough. You'll find out Susan Sarandon enough. Um do you get, is there anyone else you think might be in this? I'm actually more sure
1: that Paul Reiser is in it because I think the one scene I did catch on TV and this could not have been alien but I think it was and I think I remember Paul a young Paul Reiser and I think he was kind of like the technician that worked for the bad guy and maybe he was part of the government or some secret lab or whatever, but I feel like he wasn't a good guy in the movie.
0: Okay. Okay. Anyone else? I feel like there's
1: gotta be like someone like Rutger Howard or someone who's like the oh, wow. bad guy, but not
0: him, but someone like him, but I don't know. I'll put Rutger Howard esque person. Cause he is kind of a type. What do you think the setting of the movie is?
1: This was another fascinating thing for me to think about because I cannot tell you with certainty if it takes place on Earth or if they go to outer space to the alien's home or a combination of the two. I believe it mainly takes place on Earth. And I think that Sigourney Weaver is in some way or slash Susan Sarandon is in some way like trying to fight the good fight against some sort of like secret lab government thing. That's trying to do one thing with the alien and she's trying to do the other thing with the alien and Paul and Paul Reiser's on the bad guy side.
0: Okay. All right. Oh, so you kind of have an idea of what the
1: plot is too. The, I'm, I'm trying to get there. I mean, this is also just what I've made up in my head throughout
0: the years by seeing like yeah, you know clips yeah. and images of the, the movie. and. Well, I want to explore that. I just have one more question. Are there any quotes associated with this film?
1: Oh, totally. Totally. There's like, look, there's an alien. Okay. Um,
0: <laughs> that would be a, a really on the nose line.
1: <laughs> no one puts alien in a corner. Um, you no, know, there definitely are. And and I, I'm quite certain, I predict that as I'm watching this movie, I'm going to hear lines of dialogue that I have known forever but did not never realized the source of that
0: right yeah there is one that i'm going to spoil for you because it's not in the film it's from the trailer Mm -hmm. or possibly the poster because to be honest i don't think i've ever seen the trailer for this movie because it came out before i was born but it's quote you'll probably recognize the quote is in space no one can hear you scream.
1: That's the origin of that quote. That is the origin oh, I of that knew quote. That. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. So then they do go into outer space. Then I think you just revealed something to me.
0: There is at least a part of the movie that is in outer space. Well, oh, yes, spoiler I guess I it. it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was Ooh. on the poster though, so <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not going to take too much crap for giving that away because it was on the poster. All right. So now let's get into like more generally what you're anticipating here. Alright,
1: so I've got a couple Well, you've already revealed this Because you mentioned it was 79 that this movie came yeah. out I thought it was 80, but I was like It's in somewhere in that 79 to 81, 82 range And yeah, I think probably yeah, yeah. Aliens was maybe 81 or 82 That sounds right So I think I was close there I the, Another 80-20 thing 80% sure that Ridley Scott directed this film 20% okay. maybe it was James Cameron It wasn't John Carpenter But, you know, maybe it was someone else like that But I'm pretty sure it was Ridley Scott
0: Okay, alright any, anything else plot-wise or any scenes you think are going to happen? I
1: mean, definitely like the thing coming out of the belly, the creature coming out of the belly.
0: And is that, uh, have you seen like, do you have an idea of that entire scene or just, you know, that one thing happens?
1: Uh, I feel, no, I mean, because I think that it was lampooned in space balls. Yeah. And I think that's the scene that's in my head. Right. Yeah. It's a memorable one. Anything, anything more? Sigourney Weaver smokes. Okay. Or maybe that, because she was in like Avatar or something like that. Yeah. And and it was, I think, maybe a callback to her character.
0: Oh, is it? Well, in Avatar, she does smoke a lot and i was actually kind of surprised by that because she's a scientist working in a lab right and i know it's her lab and she's in charge but i was shocked and appalled that she was able to smoke as it, much as she did around all this incredibly sensitive equipment i mean just very
1: anachronistic yeah it's not you know you wouldn't you see the labs in like sci-fi movies from the 50s and 60s and they're all just you know smoking gorgeous. the whole time oh yeah um but like yeah, the the lab is gorgeous, and it doesn't look like people are just like blowing cigarette smoke in it there all the time.
0: But my favorite example of this is: uh, Have you ever seen Creature from the Black Lagoon? No, we could do that one. I would absolutely do that one. All right. Um, I saw it for the first time in college, and I it has a surprisingly well. Some of the people in the movie are kind of proto environmentalists and don't want to harm the creature or. Uh, disturb its environment and during the course of the film one of these people who's been fighting so hard to keep this environment pristine is out on a boat in the lagoon smoking a cigarette and she just flicks the cigarette into the lagoon when she's done with it and i'm just like come on man you spent this whole film trying to protect this area and you just uh anyway the, like, the most poisonous thing you have on you, probably. Yeah. um Cool.
1: All she, right. So, she may or may not smoke. I don't know. If so, maybe emphysema is the real monster of this film. I'm not sure.
0: But. <laughs> <laughs> the, it's like the smog monster from uh, Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster. Yes. It's just concentrated pollution. Moving... Just apart from the actual film, I'm curious, uh, how much has this movie been hyped? You mentioned before that like people around you have talked about it a lot, but have they built it up?
1: You know, I think I'm set up for disappointment, and I think because it's been put... I, I remember certain people in high school, or, you know, that era, maybe people who are older than me that I kind of looked up to, and they would always have aliens on a list that was, like, you know, with, along with, like, The Godfather, yeah. and I, I feel like there's kind of, like, some... Um, you know, masculinity in there involved as well. Some sort of like I, I think there's like certain movies that if you're a guy, you're supposed to like. It's like yeah, oh, The Godfather, yeah. Goodfellas, Terminator, totally. and I Terminator think, Two, Terminator Two, and I think that w- that was maybe part of my apprehension about the movie was like, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a big sci-fi fan, but I generally like sci-fi. You know, kind of my niche, uh, my zone is like. You know, the Kurt Vonnegut, Philip K. Dick, you know, mm-hmm. 1984 type of thing where it's just a vehicle to comment on society somehow. And maybe a little irreverent. Yeah, and maybe a little bit irreverent. Um, so, you know, sci-fi that's more like, you know, in the Star Wars genre where it's basically fantasy. It's basically Lord of the Rings in space. I'm not always as into that. Sure. Um, just as far as kind of what what speaks to me. So I think that was maybe part of my apprehension about never actually like seeking the movie out. I don't think I've avoided it.
0: How are you with scary movies? Good. Yeah? Good, good. Um, are you a fan of that genre? Yes and no. Yeah, I mean, generally,
1: yes, I am. Um, I'm not a fan of super slasher movies, and I'm yeah. not a fan of movies that think they got me because they made me jump by showing a flash and a loud noise
0: the cat jumps
1: out at you yeah Yeah. i mean you know use that sparingly Sparingly. but if that's all you got you know um i am a fan of kind of thrillers and i am a fan of kind of creepy things and and spooky things and, and that type of thing okay
0: i want to circle back to something you mentioned though which was you said that this is a movie that boys tend to like and it, or at least it's something that if you're a dude you're kind of supposed to rank it very high and you're supposed to like it what do you do you think this movie has kind of a i don't want to say like a chauvinist bent to it but do you, what about it makes you think that other Is there anything that makes you think that, other than the fact that a lot of guys have said they like it, or?
1: Yeah, I think that's basically it. Um, Okay. And and I think it kind of fits in with, like, the genre of the, and maybe it doesn't, and, you know, I think there's a female protagonist, as far as I know, so, um, but I'm thinking of, like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone and Bruce Willis, and those, that kind of 80s genre, which I think Alien was sort of a precursor to of the sort of, machismo, blockbuster, big muscle-bound, you know, type of thing. And I I think I'm probably off base with that assumption, but because I think it's just been mentioned in the same context as all those movies throughout my whole
0: life, I think I have that interpretation of it. Interesting. Okay. I think we're going to talk a little bit around that when we come back, and it's cool that that's something on your mind already. All right. Well... Um, do you have anything else before we get ready to watch the actual movie? No, I'm excited. All right. Well, cool. In that case, I think we're ready to go. Let's watch fucking Alien. Hell yeah. All right. Let's do it. I'm you, I've eaten first food this, like, oh, then i taste yeah. better. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. the other <laughs> one over You pound down the stuff like this. uh I'd rather be eating something else, but uh, right now I'm sticking <laughs> food. Uh, you, know, you just know, you know what it's made of. I <laughs> <laughs> no, that. I don't want to talk about what it's <laughs> made I'm eating this.
1: <laughs> what's the matter? The food ain't that bad, baby. On, okay.
0: <laughs> oh, oh. You chill for tomorrow. <laughs> <I don't. laughs> <laughs> <What's wrong? laughs> what? What? Uh, hey! hey, what's going Hey, I'm hmm. I'm I am Oh. 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 Oh.
1: <laughs> no, 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 Don't
0: touch it. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. And so that was Alien. That was Alien. What did you think? Well,
1: um, I'm in a really weird place in my life right now because we talked about all these preconceived notions I had about the movie Alien. And then there's Aliens and it's confusing. And now I've seen Alien and I know how wrong I was about a lot of the things I thought. But I think if I see Aliens, which I will surely do now perhaps i'll know where some of those notions came from i think that's likely i thought it was a great movie i'll put that out there i'm really glad i saw it
0: not a disappointment then no no awesome yeah i adore this film i saw it as a little kid um my dad showed it to me probably when i was way too young to see it and it left a mark like i think one of the consistent sort of ridiculous paranoid fears I had as a child was whenever I would use the bathroom, I always had to open the shower curtain because if it was ever closed, I became convinced that the alien was behind it. Yeah. Not not like literally I thought that was the case, but I just kept having this kind of creeping hair standing up on the back of my neck notion that like it's just going to throw the shower curtain open and get me. So yeah, man, this movie is... Well, to me, it is a total classic, but we'll see what you think as we discuss the film. So, let's talk about the background. This movie was written by a guy named Dan O'Bannon while working with a writing partner named Ronald Shusett, but Dan O'Bannon wrote the screenplay anyway. He first came up with the idea while he was working with John Carpenter on a movie called Dark Star. Mmm. Yeah. Then... Uh, Dan O'Bannon went and worked with a guy named Yodorowski on a little movie project called Dune, which was recently part of a documentary called Yodorowski's Dune. It's considered, uh, what do they call it, the most famous movie never made. It was this very ambitious sci-fi project that uh, ultimately wound up falling through. But apparently a lot of the designs for it were very influential on projects that happen in the future. One of the things that happened during the making of that movie is that Dan O'Bannon met an artist named H.R. Geiger, and Geiger's work inspired O'Bannon to continue working on this script. Oh, yeah. And working on it. In particular, um, O'Bannon was inspired by a painting by Geiger called Necronom 4, and I have it here. I can show it to you kind of sideways here. Are you able to see that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You see it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Geiger, as we'll see, had a lot of, well, he designed the creature. So there you go. This I thought was also very interesting. So one of the most prominent things about this is the uh, chest bursting scene. O'Bannon came up with that because uh, he was a lifelong sufferer from Crohn's disease. (laughs) So you're familiar with the ailment? Uh, I am. Well, for anyone who doesn't know, Crohn's disease is an illness that causes severe abdominal pain. And so I guess from spending so much of his life feeling a ton of pain in his uh, torso, and I think uh, he's he described it as feeling like something was inside him trying to get out. So that was where he got the idea
1: for that. I, I, I took it in a kind of more scatological direction
0: okay. when you mentioned it, just the splattering and so oh. forth <laughs> of that scene. Yeah, no wonder you laughed. <laughs> Uh, The two writers went around shopping it to studios. They pitched it as Jaws in Space, which I think comes through. Nobody wanted to do it. Uh, No one was interested in it. Uh, Science fiction was kind of in its own little off-to-the-side ghetto that nobody liked or respected. Kind of still the same way now, but especially back then. But then Star Wars came out Mm -hmm. uh, in 1977. And once that happened, everybody wanted to make a sci-fi movie. And they looked around for scripts they had. And on their desk was this movie, Alien, that someone had pitched to them. So they're like, let's make this. Uh, that was 20th Century Fox. O'Bannon wanted to direct it himself. But the studio decided to give it to a guy named Ridley Scott. So your prediction was, what was it? you were 80% sure? You were 80% right. It's directed by Ridley Scott. Excellent. Um, maybe James Cameron comes in at a later date
1: see i i had a sneaky suspicion but But not yet i'm like the nate silver of alien
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're just aggregating all the data about this movie are you a fan of ridley scott do you like his work
1: i do like the yeah i am a fan of ridley scott anything in particular Let's see. Remind me what he what what has he done? Let's go through the okay. Let's um, go through the big hits.
0: All right. Well, prior to Alien, he'd only made one major film, mm-hmm. and that was The Duelists. So this is only his second movie. He's also made, and this isn't everything, but these are kind of the greatest hits: Blade Runner. Yep. Sure. Thelma and Louise. Uh huh. Gladiator. Right. Black Hawk Down. Kingdom of Heaven. Matchstick Men. Was he involved in Hannibal? Yeah, he made Hannibal. Yeah, he made okay. Hannibal. Um, I didn't include that in the greatest hits. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> you know, I, I guess I should have. Ray Liotta eating his own brain. I know it is very very cool. Um, anyway, and you know he did uh the Martian too. Oh, and of course the sequels, prequels to this uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Mm-hmm. So,
1: and it's actually you interested. Uh, you mentioned he did the Martian, which I knew. But I did. It didn't occur to me while I was watching this movie, even when I was thinking about similarities between this
0: movie and The Martian. Oh, really? Yeah. So, you where did you see the uh, similarities? It has to have been a uh, and something that he does. Well,
1: and I, and I wasn't. I think maybe this is why I didn't make the connection because I wasn't thinking as far as visual direction or anything like that. I was more thinking of movies that take place well i didn't realize how small of a movie this was yeah i didn't realize that it's just several characters you don't see anyone else they're confined on this sh- one, on the ship
0: basically just one location i mean they go on the planet for a while but it's not not that long and i was thinking about other movies that that kind of use that premise
1: or or have that setting um, so I did think of The Martian just in that context sure. and some other movies like, um, Sunlight, Sunshine, whatever that movie is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I was, and we're going to get into the cast and crew and everything yeah. like that, but just how they, ca- I liked how they cast this movie and I'll just put oh, that yeah. in there quickly. And I don't think if the same movie was made today, you wouldn't see your Ian Holm and you wouldn't see your, um, Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that he's in this. You know, you'd have... And and if you even watch, like, you know, The Martian or or, or Sunshine, they have... All the characters are younger. They're a little bit more attractive. A little that hotter. Thing. Yeah, yep. yeah. Yeah. And that's just the, the way things have gone. So kind of in the 70s, you still could have that kind of gritty, like, they, those all look like, you know,
0: real, real people. Real people. Yeah. Yeah, it adds to the realism, totally. Bringing it back to Ridley Scott, though, just one other thing. He very uh, interestingly... His like storyboards and pre-shooting work, it all hit the horror aspects of the story much harder than the script was originally envisioned. The, the script was much more of a straight sci-fi film, and mm. Ridley Scott brought in a lot of those horror elements. He said that in making this movie, he wanted to make the Texas Chainsaw Massacre of science fiction
1: that's that's a fantastic observation or i i mean that's very that's fascinating for me to hear because one of the things in my first note i have here was watching it i realized oh and i don't know i never knew this but it's like this is just a straight-up monster movie yep just a straight-up monster movie that's what this is and i never knew that about it and i don't know why because when you think of alien
0: versus predator and how they got there of course it is but it's it's evolved quite a bit since its origins Mm -hmm. yeah i will also say too that um the note about Ridley Scott uh, bringing a lot of the horror elements in himself—that was from Wikipedia. But for this movie, I actually took it a step further than usual and read a book, or reread a book called "Shock Value" by this guy named Jason Zinneman. It's about the. Evolution of horror movies and uh, Hollywood in the nineteen late nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, and this is one of the movies he covers. And in that story, or in that version of the story, Dan O'Bannon told Ridley Scott to watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to get an idea of what he was going for. Okay. Oh, one other thing too is that um. So did you were, were, did you know that this movie was going to have a for a uh, fourth act that last scene? on the shuttle
1: you know i did not but i felt like when it when it got there i felt like i knew all along you know yeah Uh, yeah. i guess when it got there i thought like as she was getting on the shuttle i thought we were gonna see you know the there's a term for the trope in the horror movie where the the one last scare whatever the monster jumps out one last time right and when it didn't happen as she was getting on the shuttle i was like okay there's something else going on
0: so i got it got it Well, that was not originally in the script. Ridley Scott came up with that. But I will say his original idea was that uh, the alien was going to come out and bite Ripley's head off and then sit down in the chair and finish making the recording in Ripley's voice. It was going to talk with Ripley's voice and that was going to be the end of the film. So the studio nixed that idea. (laughs) And think of how different a movie it would be. (laughs) That would be very different. And it's interesting
1: to think about because instinctually i'm always on the side of the artist when it comes to you know those kinds of decisions and you know Mm -hmm. studio interference and you hear all these stories about um you know how the folks with the money uh want to make decisions that aren't necessarily artistically sound they ruin the vision but in some cases i think maybe there's something to that input and i think if it had ended like that I don't know. I would love to see how that looks like, but it may have taken on, especially in retrospect, like a more comedic effect if you see oh, that really?
0: alien talking in Sigourney oh, Weaver's voice. You yeah. Know? I mean, it depends on how they would have pulled it off, but I think by now we'd be laughing at it. Right, right. Yeah. For me, I maybe it's because I saw that um, that Red Letter Media review of Star Wars The Phantom Menace and about how that got out of control because George Lucas had too much personal power. Mm-hmm. I tend to feel like there should be a nice little balance between the push of the artist and the pull of the uh, the studio people making it more conventional. And there's a happy, there's a Goldilocks zone in there.
1: There's definitely a Goldilocks zone because there are a lot, a lot of instances, I think, where an artist will be very successful and then just kind of chase that dragon uh, down a rabbit hole, if I may completely collide two metaphors for no good reason. Totally. But, yeah. Um, And I don't know if we should really get into names, but but I think there's definitely, I think what you're saying is right. Goldilocks zone. I think that's the key. Yeah.
0: As for a little bit more of the directing before we wrap it up, Ridley Scott chose not to show the full alien for most of the film and kept most of its body in the shadows. And, you know, that was to create a sense of terror and suspense. Mm -hmm. I think you can see the influence, surely Alfred Hitchcock, but I was also thinking Jaws. Maybe just because I've just watched Jaws last week for the podcast. But uh, there's a lot of that idea. With one exception, which again, we're going to talk about more in a minute, but that's the chest bursting scene, Mm -hmm. which they just show... uh, One thing I read, I forget where it was I read this, but it's notable that that scene is actually bathed in light. You Mm. see everything very well in that Mm -hmm. scene. Anyway, um, let's talk about the cast. Roger Ebert, when he first saw this film noted that the cast, even for then, was older than normal, Mm. and that added a sense of realism. Mm. A term that often comes up when talking about not just this cast, but the kind of cliche it inspired is truckers in space. (laughs) They're all very blue-collar, and it makes them easy to identify with. You know, you, you I think right away get... Well, the performances, too, I think are very natural and real, so that helps. Yeah. But I, I think you really feel this crew and where they're at right away.
1: And and there's a realism to it even that extends beyond just sort of the casting, but the way that it's directed, the way that it's lit, all of that stuff. The design and of I, the
0: ship and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. That aesthetic, um, there's two kind of visions of science fiction, right? There's that utopian, beautiful, pristine, and pure, gorgeous Star Trek science fiction. Mm-hmm. And then there's the janky, busted, broken down, more worn look. Yeah. So, Sigourney Weaver as Ripley, what did you think? Not Susan Sarandon. No, but you were 80% there. I was 80%
1: there. Um, she was great. She was great. And yeah. you know, uh, I think that I never really got the Sigourney Weaver thing because I, exactly for this reason, I had never
0: seen this movie before. Well, but like, how do you mean just like as an actress? Uh, as, as an actress,
1: as a cultural icon, as a sex Mm -hmm. figure, all of those things.
0: Yeah. This I mean, this is definitely the movie that made her an icon and Ripley is absolutely an action heroine icon. Like Ridley Scott, Sigourney Weaver had not done very much up until this. I think it's certainly her first big role. I think up until this point, she'd only had a couple of bit parts in movies. So it's kind of incredible just how well acted Ripley is. Like she's such a complete character. Uh, but, but where she is at the beginning and where she is at the end, like the breakdown of Ripley's cool is so natural and organic. Mm-hmm. You know, she's such a well put together, cool's a cucumber person at the beginning. And just the way that degrades slowly.
1: Yeah. And I think some of that goes into, I mean, absolutely. And I'm surprised to hear that, that she had never had a starring vehicle before um, yeah. this because she just carries the movie so well and i think some of that is in the direction too and the interaction between the different characters and i'm thinking specifically of and there's a i don't remember the character's name but there's one other female character in the film uh, uh, lambert lambert and there's a scene where lambert is just kind of completely freaking out yeah and ripley is just like cold calculated determined this is what we got to do we got to stick to the plan And, I mean, that was a choice, I think, from both actors and the director. You don't know what alchemy created that, but it was a remarkable scene just in the way that it was acted.
0: Yeah, everyone's character is coming across very strongly in that moment. I know the scene you're talking about, and it comes later, we'll... I should stop saying this constantly, but we'll get to that. But um, the way everyone is reacting to stress is very uh, natural to their character as they've established them so far. Speaking of that scene... Someone who's in that scene, who I think is really, really good in this movie, is Ian Holm as Ash. Yes, he is. So did you know he was a
1: robot? I had no idea. I did not see it coming at all. Okay. Well, what did you think of his performance? It was fantastic. And, you know, I think because this movie wore its tropes on its sleeve to a certain extent, or maybe I'm
0: well i think it's i'm looking I, at it through a retrospective lens
1: when i say that yeah perhaps. those
0: tr- a lot of those tropes are being born in this movie mm-hmm. you know this the
1: ian holm character ash he was i feel like every movie like this there is the one part of the crew that's the antagonist
0: yeah or there's like there's one part of the crew who's the snake who right can't be trusted or is a coward
1: and and it works on a bunch of different level or it 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 serves a bunch of different purposes. Yeah. You know, it interjects some conflict into every scene, which is well needed. And it also, of course, is a a huge plot device moving forward. So I think that character, you know, you think of like Val Kilmer and Top Gun (laughs) as another kind of example that's coming to mind of of that sort of trope. But um, yeah, it's absolutely always there. And then kind of the reveal that he's a robot. Just I, I, I didn't see I didn't see that coming. I thought, you know, he was certainly he was, you know, the guy who was going to turn out to be evil. That was pretty clear yeah. from like early on in the movie. But um but no, I did not see that coming.
0: You know, it's interesting rewatching this film in that I also in no way saw that coming the first time. But um it's well hidden when you're watching it the first time. But when you rewatch it, mm-hmm. it is so clear both in the writing, the fact that he is working across purposes to the crew, in mm-hmm. particular Ripley, and in Ian Holmes acting, the fact that he is not reacting quite like a human would or should. Mm-hmm. It's very subtle, but once you know, you start to notice it a lot more. It's a great, subtle performance. I love it. Um and um just to throw this out there, in the later films, one of the, in my opinion, few good parts of the uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant prequel sequels that Scott did is uh, Michael Fassbender's performance as a robot, David, mm. uh, and that's not a spoiler, That's he was always pitched as being a robot, but uh, his performance, I think, owes a lot to Ian Holmes. The, you see a lot of parallels in them, so just to throw that out there. Um, the rest of the crew we can talk about, although maybe not spend quite as much time on them, but I do want to mention a few. First of all, Harry Dean Stanton as Brett is yes. great. He's the one in particular when, when I watch this movie, I always feel like I need to say everyone is so young. Yeah, but he's not young. He's... No, he's... but just compared to the Harry Dean Stanton I know. Right. He's just so young. <laughs>
1: Well, uh, sure, that's well, it's 40 years ago that they shot it, right? If yeah. it was released in 79. So,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, we have John Hurt is Kane. Yeah, dude. I love John Hurt. Gotta love some John Hurt. He doesn't. I mean, it's funny that uh, I it's not that you forget that he's in this movie because he's the first victim of the alien. He's the person who the the first chest burst scene, one of the most famous scenes in all movie history is happening to him. And yet because of that, he's sort of the first person to die. So you don't think of him as being part of the movie quite so much. Right. He also spends half of it with something over his face. Yeah, true. So you kind of not that you forget that he's in it, but you don't always associate him with this movie, even though he's associated with the absolute most important scene. There's Tom Skerritt as Dallas, but I mean, when I'm talking about Tom Skerritt, for me, it's basically picket fences or nothing, so (laughs) I think we can skip over him unless you want to say something.
1: Oh, not necessarily.
0: I do want to throw out—well, okay. Just to finish off the crew, we have Veronica Cartwright as Lambert. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that she was—how do I want to phrase this without coming across as an asshole— As the film goes on, she is reduced to a trope that you can call the hysterical chick. Mm -hmm. And that is a trope, but at the same time, I think it is used to put her, as you said, in stark contrast to Ripley, who is keeping it together much better. Right. And whether it was deliberate or not, I think it does a good job of establishing Ripley as what is now considered to be the strong female action hero type. Mm-hmm. Um, so to a certain extent, you needed Veronica Cartwright there mirroring her to at least ram it home, certainly. Right. And then lastly, Yafet Kodo is Parker. <laughs> I just, I love the guy because I was a big fan of Homicide, Life on the Street. Did you ever watch that show? Yeah, he's on that. I'm, he was the, um, he's the lieutenant who runs the homicide department. G., Huh, okay, I didn't put that together. Yeah, dude, he's awesome. I fucking love Yafet Kodo. And he dies like a motherfucking champion, just trying to take the alien on one-on-one, one-on-one. trying to save Lambert. It's very brave.
1: It's very brave, and I was actually, you know, pleasantly surprised to, frankly, see him stick around. Mm-hmm. To, frankly,
0: st- see They him. didn't kill the black guy first. Yeah, yeah. Th- that's what I was getting at, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, also worth mentioning, is um, Bolaje Badejo... Played the alien. He uh was cast mm. for all of the um alien moving scenes as for the adult alien because he was six ten and very skinny. Mm. They took a full mold of his body in order to create the suit for him and everything like that. And so he's pretty cool. Okay. Let's talk about
1: the plot of this film. Yes. Well, there's two more characters, actually, that are very important. Oh, please. But they're not cast necessarily by humans. Oh, right. We have, of course, Mother. That
0: bitch. That bitch. (laughs) And Jonesy. Jonesy the cat. That bitch. Yeah. So um, one of your predictions is uh, the idea that In scary movies, you don't really appreciate the jump scare, which I, without even really thinking about it, referred to as the cat jumps out of the shadows to startle you. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of jump scares in this film. I think most of them very effective. Not a lot that aren't actually something real that's coming at you, but once or twice, it really is the fucking cat. It really is. And that's
1: how they set you up with the cat and it was very well-
0: it's it was true. very well executed. Or they, they set you up with the cat and then, you know, oh, it's just going to be the cat again and then it isn't, you know? Yeah, and I, I do like that so many horrible consequences come from the crew's inability to wrangle this fucking cat. Yeah, oh yeah. Like, if they just had a dog that would come when called, they would have gotten out of there so much easier. Uh, well, I mean, I love it because you see the cat in the first shot.
1: <laughs> or not, the first shot where you see the cat, I should say, early on in the movie... And it definitely stuck out to me, like, there's a cat on this spaceship? Yeah, man. And then I'm like, well, that's got to be, you know, that's not going to be a random shot. You know, it's it's the it's the rule. It's,
0: no. it's Chekhov's cat, right? Yeah. Well, the cat's important. Yeah. Oh, very important. Yeah. Jonesy might actually be the most famous cat in cinema history. Oh, okay. I mean, as far as domesticated cats go, you've got the uh, MGM lion, of course. MGM lion, I think, would be
1: more iconic. There's um, the
0: cowardly lion. Right. Okay, but that's not a
1: domesticated <laughs> not a, cat, yeah, nor not a, a real, real lion. <laughs> real cat. yeah. I, I, I mean, we can get into Simba and all that if we're going to get into lions. Sure. But as just a domesticated cat, I can't think
0: of a rival right now. I'm, I'm, um, you know, maybe there is one somewhere, but. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll see if anything comes to mind as we go on. So yeah, I, I love Jonesy. Um, although I don't really like cats.
1: Well, there's a cats are problematic. For reasons that we've been speaking about, and as you mentioned, if it was a dog who had just come when called, uh, a lot of this movie wouldn't have happened.
0: Right. So, okay, fine, Jonesy. Thank you. <laughs> all right. So the the plot of this movie. Um. First of all, a couple of predictions to refer back to. So you got Sigourney Weaver mostly right. Paul Reiser. He's not in this film.
1: No, uh, not at all. Not even like a little bit.
0: Maybe, there is a... maybe he shows up later. We'll have to see. Yeah. Would you say that there's a Rutger Hauer esque person in this? Maybe Ian
1: Holm. I think that's who I was. That's He's the closest. That's the archetype I had in mind, at okay. least.
0: All right. Um, like we said, uh, it's not on Earth or really a planet. It's mostly in just on the Nostromo. That's, uh, see, that was something that
1: I completely didn't know. It was a complete surprise to me. I thought for sure some of the movie happened on Earth. But then I'm thinking back at it, and I think aliens happens on Earth. You don't have to tell me yes or no. And I think that that was one thing that like people would rag on me because I hadn't seen alien or aliens. And they'd be like, which one takes place in space? And and, and then I'd guess
0: wrong. Oh. And then they'd be like, you idiot. <laughs> that is both incredibly immature and 100% something I would have done when I was 20. <laughs> That leads me to this question, though. So, given what you're saying, it sounds like your impression of this movie going in, you were expecting something a little bit more like an action film, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, I was. So, yeah, you weren't really anticipating it being essentially a slasher in space?
1: No, I I think my conception was something more along the lines of Independence Day. Gotcha.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, this movie must have really been a surprise to you. Complete surprise. Delightfully so. Yeah, great, great. Um, you have your comments about someone saying, look, an alien, and let's talk about that in a little bit. Ridley Scott directed it. Something came out of a person's belly. Mm-hmm. I don't think Sigourney Weaver smoked in this movie. but Lots of people did. Lambert sure did, and uh-huh. Brett. Yeah, people uh-huh. were smoking. And then I guess your last comment, which we just referred to, was that you felt you were set up for disappointment, which doesn't seem like worked out.
1: No, I don't think I was. I think I was pleasantly surprised. Cool, cool.
0: And, um... Then there was a little bit you were talking about whether or not this was, I don't want to say a chauvinist film, but the kind of boys club nature of the fandom for this movie. Let's circle back to that. But that's something we should talk about. Mm -hmm. All right. And now actual plots. I know I keep promising it, but now we're going to talk about it. The movie starts and we see the Nostromo. Yeah. Interesting set. I always feel like it's interesting how vertical that ship design is. Interesting. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not very aerodynamic, but then the fact that it's moving through outer space means it doesn't have to be.
1: I've got a question about the opening scene. Because one thing that was striking to me was just how deliberately paced it was, particularly when you take into account how much things have sped up narratively and editing-wise in the way movies are told nowadays. It's
0: a real sign of the time it was made, isn't it? You don't see a human, you don't see a
1: person for several minutes, I don't think. Yeah. You're slowly panning first the exterior of the ship and then the interior of the ship. And I also... Well, this was the question I I have because I referenced already Spaceballs earlier in this podcast. Was... The opening shot of Spaceballs, where they have the ridiculously long exterior shot of the spaceship, was that a, par- a direct parody of this opening? Because I always thought that that was kind of ragging a little bit on the Star Trek movie.
0: I think it might be also be a uh, a riff on the opening shot of Star Wars A New Hope, which mm-hmm. has the rebel ship comes flying through and is very tiny. And then when the Imperial Star Destroyer enters the frame, it just keeps going and going and going. And the sheer size of the Imperial ship kind of conveys to you just how outmatched the rebels are compared to the Mighty Empire. Mm. That would be my guess. But I only saw Spaceballs once and it's been a long time. So my memory of it could be fuzzy. Mm. Honestly, the only thing I really remember about Spaceballs is the last scene, which has the riff on this movie, right? So, uh, but that would be my guess. However, uh, at the end of the movie, this sheer size of the Nostromo does come into it when Ripley's trying to escape from the self-destruct and she keeps trying to fly away and the ship just fucking keeps on going. <laughs> it's so fucking big. Yeah, yeah. Did, speaking of the pacing um did you find it slow or were you wor- was it working for you because i'm you know it is such a from an older era of movie making and i'm always curious how well people who've grown up later are able to just sit still and deal with it mm-hmm. you know without getting a little antsy i i appreciate what you're saying there um i think it's both things i think yeah.
1: both. It feels slowly paced and anything that you watch from that era or even, you know, previous eras even more so, it's just slowly paced just because I think the language not to be I'm gonna sound like a pretentious asshole right now. Please do. The language of cinema has accelerated so much in the past generation. Oh yeah. As far as um what is just shorthand, what is what is perceived by the audience fast and then kind of, we just move on to the next thing. Oh yeah. So it takes way less time just because the way that we have evolved to accept these signals coming into our brain. Um, So we basically don't need that much. We don't need that much. Now that doesn't mean to say that I can't appreciate it, but it's, it's definitely there were parts of it that definitely felt a little slow to me. But not in a bad way necessarily.
0: Okay. Good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Speaking just for myself, I had been. My dad told me ahead of time that this is a scary movie, mm-hmm. and so the slow pacing of it to me did a lot to help build up my sense of dread. Mm-hmm. For uh, sure. Yeah, and I think that's something that is very effectively done, especially from this era of horror films. Is the slowness of it works in its favor, provided you're like. On the right wavelength with the film that like, oh, this is making me much more tense and it's raising my anxiety level yeah. as opposed to just getting kind of like, you know, anxious to move on.
1: It's very true. And I don't want to skip around too much, but there are some scenes that definitely build suspense oh, yeah. very uh, in a way that would just be way too slow these days. But I felt like it was very effective.
0: Well, I think we should uh, get to one of those scenes, which is when they finally get the signal that they're going to investigate and follow up on, they land on this alien planet. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I do notice about this movie is, um, maybe it's because I saw 2001 relatively recently as well, but um, I guess back then, they were just much more interested in the minutia of space travel. Yeah. Like, so much time is spent on, we're going to land... On the planet, you know, and here's how complicated re-entry and landing is, but, you know, it's the future and this is how it's done and isn't that interesting? Or we're going to go from the moon station to this archaeological dig in 2001. So much time spent just on the practical here-to-there steps that we usually
1: skip now. Right, that's true. We do completely skip them because we
0: audiences would get
1: bored. We'd get bored and it would be like, you know, watching a car try to back into a parking spot. Yeah, it's
0: just like get there, please just get there and keep it moving. Yeah. But um also design-wise, uh I feel like there's a visual sense to this movie that 2001 is that pristine utopian view, and this is mm-hmm. the grungy side of that universe. Mm-hmm. This is where the poor people who work in the bowels of those ships, this is what their universe looks like. Absolutely, and that that was,
1: I think, clear th- the way that they set up um all the characters and they set up their motivations and their money money right and there's some there's some they're definitely getting hosed by the company that they're working from they don't go into it in too much detail but you know you get the feeling that they're being shit on by this whatever organization that's paying them to go out and capture this alien um and
0: which it doesn't even tell them they're
1: doing which it doesn't tell them they're doing so absolutely these guys are all you know basically blue collar guys in space
0: yeah. And I mean, I, Yaffe Kodo and, and uh, Harry Dean Stanton are introduced uh, complaining about money. Right. And it's it's the way that banter works is so good for establishing their characters. And the hierarchy on the ship, too, where you've got them at the bottom and Tom Skerritt certainly on the top and everybody else kind of in this uh, blobby middle.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I thought it was one thing that I appreciate when movies do well is getting across character and motivation and exposition in a way that doesn't seem forced. Yeah. And a device that this movie used to great effect was that sort of, you know, intramural conflict that justifies exposition. Right. You know, because they're talking about the equipment and they're arguing. And when you argue, you say kind of these things that you wouldn't, that, that, that you exposes both already know. Exposes your character a little bit. That exposes your character a little bit and also that you don't already know. Like, you wouldn't say you have to, you know, click on the thing to print the document when you work in an office because everyone knows that, but when something goes wrong and you're getting in an argument, you're going to state the obvious, which communicates to the audience information that they need to know, but that the characters wouldn't naturally say in that setting. Yeah. So I thought that was something kind of clever in those early parts of the script that it pulled off well. Yeah, well, it's a good script.
0: So, anywho, they land on this planet and they discover the alien ship. This was where I wanted to talk about your comment, uh, look, it's an alien. Uh, you know, this movie is called Alien, but there's actually two aliens in this film. There's this, right? what's called the space jockey, the pilot of the ship who's fallen victim to the xenomorph. Mm-hmm. Um And it always stuck out to me, the fact that their reaction to it, it's, they are impressed, but not very impressed. You know, they're Mm -hmm. like, holy cow, take a look at this. And to my mind, if I had been there, it would be more like, holy fucking Jesus, it's a fucking alien. Are you guys seeing this? It is an alien. This is proof of intelligent extraterrestrial life. Holy fuck fuck they must have had first contact by then right yeah, like it's I, just so la-di-da i had the
1: same exact thought like this seemed a little routine not necessarily routine i would say but like an an expedition that knew these things existed had come this wasn't the first time human beings had become in contact with alien life otherwise those are just some jaded motherfuckers
0: i, I mean they do have procedures for dealing with it which suggests that it's happened before but like intelligent life with a ship right like this could conceivably they're talking about money in the beginning this could conceivably be the most valuable discovery in the history of mankind Mm -hmm. and no one has a reaction that would make you think that it was
1: well i mean i just got to ask out of curiosity like further on in what's canonically the alien universe um do they ever go into more backstory or talk about if human society um, had encountered alien life before this movie.
0: They eventually sort of do. Okay. All right. Um, how spoilery do you want me to be here? Uh, well, we can just leave it there. Okay. We get our first amazing jump scare, I think, which is Kane getting the chest, uh, the face hugger yeah. attached to his face. This is the birth of that trope that I think comes up occasionally, which is, huh, this looks weird and dangerous. Let me stick my face in it. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, it's so reckless of him. He puts his face so close to that egg. I feel like, and I
1: I don't mean this necessarily as a negative criticism, but it's just an observation. And, you know, I mean, without doing this, you don't have the movie, but I felt like they decided to let the alien creature onto the spaceship Way too easy. They could have just cut their losses and were like, sorry, dude.
0: (laughs) Well, here's the thing about that. Um, And this is uh, going a little bit to my point of Ash's behavior. Yes. Makes is a little bit hidden and makes sense in context, but then makes a lot more sense the second time you watch. Yes. Ripley wasn't going to let them on the ship. And it's Ash who breaks the quarantine protocol to let them on the ship. And there would have been no movie if they had listened to Ripley, if she, you know, she was following procedure, right. Uh, but it required Ash's decision to do that. So that
1: fucking asshole. I know. Right. Well, there's that one scene where she confronts him about it pretty early on. And she talks about, you know, when the two other characters are off ship, she's the commanding officer and he's just very, you know, condescending to her. And there's, sort of a, an underlying misogyny I think to that character and absolutely. you kind of feel like at least I felt like watching it was like that's just how they're building the character to play this role of just the guy who's the dick to insert conflict into scenes
0: I know and the oh, he's so consistently a dick specifically to her too yeah. and it has you are absolutely right a misogynist bent to it the way he like subtly dismisses her and her ideas and doesn't respect her like you know she looks at the mic oh please don't touch that Or she's like, how does this work? And he's like, it does this and this and that. And like, you wouldn't even understand, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, it's such a great performance. I I did also notice for the first time, which I think is funny, given what we learn about the nature of Ash's insides later, that at the end of that argument scene, he takes a nice big swig of milk. Is it milk he's drinking there? Well, it's something. It appears to be milk. It could be. It is a whitish drink. Uh
1: huh. Well, he's kind
0: of full of that white goo, and we'll yeah, you know, is. yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. But um, just uh, speaking a little bit more about this face hugger going in, how familiar were you with the aliens' life cycle? I think that was something that either
1: I had just assumed or I had gleaned that it's that, that that's how it.
0: So you had every step though, like egg to face hugger to baby out the chest to full grown adult?
1: Um n- no, not every step along the way, but just yes, yeah, but but parasitically using a human to kind of incubate and then obviously come out of the chest is something I knew. Um, yeah, so I, I I think I assumed that basic structure but I didn't know the specifics and the face hugger thing to me was I think I certainly have seen that Perry did a bunch of times times. and just never knew it
0: oh that and you didn't did you know it was from like something or did you know it was from alien and just didn't know the scene
1: no you know what I think I've probably seen that gag a bunch and just thought it was kind of like a standard gag
0: okay just keeping with the the face hugger attached to Kane we also get the thing about its biology that its blood was made out of acid. You didn't know that. I didn't know that. That was awesome. Yeah, isn't that a cool aspect of that design? Yeah.
1: Now, is it Ash who physically pokes the thing? I'm, I'm not remembering. It's not him, is it?
0: Oh, it is. But uh, It was when um, Ash wants to leave it on Kane. Right. And again, so much of this, you know, is once you know what his motivations are, mm-hmm. makes a lot more sense. But Tom Skerritt... Uh, insists that they take it off, and that's when he cuts it and we get the acid blood. Yeah. Which is, my God, it doesn't really make sense how an animal could do that, but as a defense mechanism, it doesn't get much better than that. No, that's
1: a pretty great one. And it led to one of my favorite dialogue exchanges in the movie, again between Ripley and Ash, where Ripley says... This thing bleeds acid when it's alive, who knows what it does when it's dead. Something like that. And then uh, Ian Holm comes back with, oh, I think it's fair to assume it's not a zombie. Which is <laughs> like, what the fuck? Dude? It's fair to assume nothing at this point. I mean, we know his ulterior motive after the fact, but. But he's you know, such a dick about it. He's just it. such a dick about
0: everything. Yeah. And there is such a dismissive, condescending, misogynist bent to his Interactions with Ripley in particular. I guess he doesn't interact with Lambert very much. Right. So we wouldn't see it there. But um, yeah, the way they clash is so gendered. Anyway, the thing comes off of Kane. hmm And we get the scene. And this is something I imagine you've seen parodied plenty of times before, not just in Spaceballs. Of
1: course. It's the one of the most iconic scenes in movies. Yeah.
0: Knowing that, though, did it still have power for you yes
1: but it's also one of those things where you know I knew it of course you know it so well but you but I also didn't know the specifics like I didn't know that it was that that it happened at a table while they were eating which were
0: you expecting it before it started
1: I think once, yes, I was. I think because just I knew it was coming and I knew it was going to be probably the next scene after the scene that preceded it. Sure, so once you are sitting there and then, of course, the fact that they're eating food and complaining about the quality of the food. Um,
0: it's setting you up it's for some, something. Everything's too cash. Yeah. <laughs> like, things yeah. are too normal. Yeah, yeah. And, and it
1: also sets up the fact that he's going to start feeling sick, you know, in a oh, moment. yeah, and, totally, and, totally. And I was, I don't uh, the word that just came to mind is is delighted and mm. I mean that seems odd to say because it's a very gory gross violent scene but just I just had an appreciation I, I probably didn't have the impact for me just because it's so iconic and something I'd seen so many times and something I knew was coming but just uh, the appreciation of the execution of the way that it was actually done and the uh, way they actually pulled it off in the movie was I think delightful to me. It also was, is kind of viscerally gross and 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 viscerally disturbing. Um, on top of that, and and that wasn't completely dulled by the prior knowledge.
0: That's awesome. I love to hear that. That's great. You know, I, I also do want to say talking about the quarantine aspect. I guess it might be because of this movie, but given what they figured out from studying the facehugger while it was on Kane, and knowing how certain animals on Earth behave, in particular some types of wasps, which did in fact serve as an inspiration for this movie, the fact that it could have been implanting something into him would have been the first thing on my mind. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. maybe it's because most of them aren't super educated, except for Ash, who's working to help it along, that mm-hmm. they don't think of it. But man, also, if you think about it, if they'd just gotten into the cryo chambers and gone home, everything would have happened fine for them. You know, they would have gotten frozen yep. and then they would have arrived and gone home. But it's the fact that they decide to have one last meal. That really fucks them over. Yes, it does. If they'd just gone straight to sleep. Totally different movie. Mm. So, the thing happens. And I, I also want to say, I know I keep jumping back to Ash and how much I like this character and performance. But um, I wonder a little bit if he wasn't f- being a little flex. His orders were to bring the thing back. And yes, the crew is expendable. But... His behavior in this movie, and I wonder if you feel the same way, suggests that maybe he was playing fast and loose with his orders because he was curious about the creature. Like, he could have insisted they go straight to sleep. Mm -hmm. And there are various times where it just seems like he's making decisions based on the fact that he wants to see this animal and its full life cycle and everything about it. He likes it. He's, Mm -hmm. You know, it's like Lambert says, he admires it. And it's his curiosity about this creature that leads to some of his behavior, even more so than his ulterior motives coming from his orders from the company, Mm -hmm. you know, and not to create spoilers, but the fact that that curiosity is such a central part of his character and the fact that he is so taken, he as a robot is so fascinated by this animal and taken with it and admires it and loves it so much is very interesting uh, when you look at it through the context of D- my uh, Michael Fassbender's performance as David in those prequel movies, Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Not to be spoilery, but just it makes me maybe respect those movies a little bit more, seeing that carry through. I don't know. It probably doesn't make super, a ton of sense to you, but no, for anyone who's seen all of them.
1: But I think I get where you're going with just in, in regards to this movie... It's as a as kind of as a standalone observation. there's hmm. um, Something interesting that you said that I had, it hadn't occurred to me, but the fact that he's a robot and presumably he's programmed by the company slash mother to just execute the mission, to just get the alien back. But he certainly expresses in his actions and his words, this admiration for this thing. And when he's in his you know his death scene if we can jump there for a moment sure. um, he actually gives a monologue when he's you know just a decapitated robot head where he talks about how you know the alien is a perfect creature without conscious remorse or delusions
0: of morality It's an amazing monologue And he's
1: he's just Bukaki Ash at that point <laughs>
0: I know it does look like he has a face covered in cum <laughs> It's pretty hilarious
1: But uh, but um I think it it certainly gives you something to think about because well what's a robot then if he has these sort of underlying personal he has uh, motivations a, as well a
0: bit of free will yeah yeah i it does raise that question you're absolutely right so after the chesper scene we get the death of brett and the first reveal of the fully grown alien which is fucking terrifying did you know it had the um the second mouth Yes, that I okay. knew. That okay. I knew. Did you um have any sense of All right, this is just something that stands out to me every time. The chain room where Brett dies. What is this room?
1: I yeah. Well, there were a lot of parts of that ship that just... I was like, why do they have this? What's its function? Um, And it seemed like you said this before, but considering that there's only like six people on it, it just seems like they have a lot of
0: space to... I know. Well, I guess if you think about those giant uh, tanker ships that go in between like LA and Shanghai, mm -hmm. like what are those crews? Like, I don't even know how big the crew for that would be, but it's probably at least somewhat similar in terms of scale mm-hmm. to okay. how much yep. ship there is compared to how many people are walking around. Yeah. But I just I always wonder what is up with this room. Like, okay, so it, it, there's there's water falling from the ceiling. That's related to the cooling system. Fine, that makes sense. But why are there these hanging chains? They're so atmospheric and it makes the scene better that they're there, but what is going on with this room? It's I don't know. So, Brett dies and then we get the vents scene mm-hmm. which i think would be another one that maybe you've seen parodied before for sure for sure and but we
1: talked about this a little bit already but you know when you start thinking about movies that came out afterwards like die hard or mission impossible that used sort of similar things and it certainly by now has become a, a just a cliche so in seeing that scene it was kind of hard for me to be like okay Am I recognizing something that I've seen parodied before, or is this just become a, a sort of a trope? You know, there's some specifics to the scene as far as the way the
0: doors open and close and stuff like that. And he's got the flamethrower, I guess. And also there's the um the proximity alerts, the device to like beep beep, beep beep, beep mm-hmm, beep, beep. Mm-hmm. That which certainly adds a lot of tension to the scene. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm always so curious to explore here, which is when people start recognizing these scenes. I'm always curious like are you recognizing it because maybe you caught this on TV or you've seen it before or are you recognizing the parody Mm -hmm. of this scene you know where do you think you know this from speaking for myself I often recognize this scene from arguably my favorite episode of the Simpsons which uh, is the one where Bart brings Santa's little helper to school Mm -hmm. and groundskeeper Willie is trying to find it in the vents Yep, super fucking good (laughs) And, you know, um, Tom Skerritt's death, Dallas's death is a jump scare, but it might be one of the best jump scares. Very well done. Yeah. Like it, it just with the alien reaching out, the the sound it makes is so loud and so sudden and so terrifying. That screaming like, Arr! oh, uh-huh. my God, even knowing that it's coming, I always kind of jump out of my seat a little bit.
1: Yeah. And I think I, I in the. Previous segment, I talked a little bit, I think, negatively about jump scares because generally I, I view them negatively. However, if they're well done in that they are earned by the plot yeah, and also executed well, then I'm a big fan of them. I think a lot of lesser movies just put in as many jump scares as they can because they can't think of a more interesting way to entertain yeah, scare you
0: i think there's two ways that those lesser movies tend to screw it up which is one they rely too heavily on the fake jump scare which is the cat jumping out of the shadows yeah yeah you jump up in the air but you feel a little ripped off by it and then two part of the reason why those jump scares in this movie work so well is because you spent the previous five minute scene in this state of mounting dread and terror and that's the payoff for it. Whereas if it's just a jump scare out of nowhere that hasn't been built up, like you basically what you've been enjoying has been your fear prior to the jump scare. You know, it's not the ju- I mean, the jump scare is great, but you remember Alien is being good because you were so terrified for the whole movie mm-hmm. waiting for the jump scare. Mm-hmm. You know, you want the jump. You don't want to be surprised by the jump scare. You're practically begging for it by the time it actually comes if they're doing it right. All right. After that, Dallas is dead. There's only four crew members left. We've got Ripley, Ash, Parker, and Lambert. One funny thing about this scene where they're all trying to figure out what to do, and also this is the scene we were talking about earlier where everyone's starting to freak out a little bit and everyone's reaction to it is so natural to their character and illustrative of their character. Yep. You know, Ripley is keeping it together but barely Parker is furious, Lambert's hysterical, and Ash is just, well, I'm still collating. Doing nothing helpful. <laughs> but uh, one thing I think is funny in the scene is that they say very specifically, no more splitting up. We all stick together from now on. Right. And then they split up a bunch of times after that. It's like, don't do that. Although it is actually the duo and not the solo person who die.
1: That That's true as well, yeah. Later on, yeah. And another funny thing uh, that um, I think was said in that scene was when Ripley says, you know, the shuttle won't take four. That made me laugh a little bit. It's like, I don't think that's going to be an issue. (laughs) Yeah,
0: probably not. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, good foreshadowing there. So this is where we finally get the revelation that, uh, first of all, the company is orchestrating what's happened, Mm -hmm. which Dick Move Company. Right. Second... Ash is a fucking robot. When did you realize something was wrong in that scene? It's
1: And I don't remember the exact line he says, but he says something like there's a perfectly good explanation for this or something like that. Yeah. And then and it kind of slowly builds from there. Um I have to admit I did not Know what was going on until fairly late in that. I mean, obviously something was going on, and once he starts, you know, throwing her around and he's kind of freaking out. Yeah, it seems. Um, but I didn't guess that he was a robot. I thought that somehow the alien had something to do with it. him. Yeah,
0: that would have been very interesting. I was the same as you. I didn't come to the conclusion that he was a robot, but I first noticed something was amiss. When there's that bead of sweat and it's milky, Mm -hmm. it's white. And that is very strange and freaky the moment you notice it Mm -hmm. because it's wrong. There's something uncanny about it. (laughs) He looks like a human, but, you know, he's got this milk coming out of him. What the fuck? Um, And then he's too strong. Also, what I think is very striking in that scene is the method he attempts to use to kill Ripley is very striking and terrifying he rolls up that magazine yeah. and tries to shove it down her throat you don't see something like that a lot here's what i thought and this
1: is this is how late in that scene i realized what was actually happening that he was a robot because I thought even when I saw the milky stuff, I thought that somehow the alien had either possessed him or was inhabiting somehow uh-huh. or had laid eggs into his head. And that's what we're seeing. dripping sure. down. Yeah. Yeah. So when he starts trying to shove a rolled up magazine down her throat, I, first of all, very weird. But <laughs> yeah. secondly, I thought that what he was going to attempt to do was try to like lay eggs down the chute into her. That's a cool idea.
0: I, that's yeah. just
1: where my mind went to. No,
0: no, I see it. Now Now but, that you say that, that's very interesting.
1: But now that I'm thinking about it, having seen the whole movie, why was he trying to shove a magazine down her throat? That's such an unorthodox way In, of murder,
0: and it seems yeah. very illogical for a robot. Maybe he wanted to enjoy it. He clearly didn't like Ripley. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we've seen that his behavior isn't always purely logical, although He does kind of drop all pretenses of human behavior once that scene starts. Right. So Ash is neutralized, finally, in a pretty good fight sequence. Speaking to unorthodox methods of fighting, one of the things he does is uh, to fight off Parker, Yafet Kodo, who you would assume would be way stronger than him, given their physical builds and i think is probably the moment where a lot of people realize that he's not human when the strength differential is shown but the thing he does is he just reaches his hand over and grabs his peck and squeezes Mm -hmm. and i just imagine like it's not really a great fighting move but i also imagine that if he's as strong as you would assume he is being a robot that would hurt so bad robot claw the titty yeah yeah (laughs) i feel so bad for parker like that must have sucked anyway we get broken Bukaki ash which is an amazing scene that's i I, you know i think there aren't a ton of necessarily quotable quotes in the movie proper i think the most memorable one is the in space no one can hear you scream from the advertising Mm -hmm. but the speech ash gives about the alien yeah and just that is pretty memorable and maybe it's no one particular line but the whole thing sticks out You know, and of course, his kiss-off line, I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. Yes. What a dick. I know. Ash, you know, he really is an incredibly human creation, because he's such a dick. Yeah. They kill him, and they complain a little bit about the actions of the company. And, you know, there is a somewhat anti-capitalist message to this film perhaps i think
1: so that's something i wasn't expecting but certainly um you know anti-corporate uh Mm -hmm. you know uh, the heartless corporate agenda that doesn't care about anything other than profit um profit in this case being somehow related to bringing back an indestructible alien to the planet
0: yeah ripley speculates that they want it for their uh bioweapons division Mm -hmm. mm-hmm And, I mean, even at the very beginning, you know, you've got uh, people complaining about not getting paid enough. Right. They probably aren't getting paid enough. Can we get back to the character of Parker for
1: just a moment? Absolutely. Because I feel like that is something that I was thinking when watching the movie um, where you see him. And I think this was pretty common in this era to have the character who is, you know, quote unquote, the black guy. I'm the only African-American in the film, and who it's not necessarily a racist trope, and I don't think it's something along the lines of, like, the magical black man or something like that. But there's this character, there's one in Predator as well, where he's just kind of like... You know, certainly blue collar, but also just a little bit... Money uh, focused, maybe? There's definitely the fact that the first thing you see him do is bitch about getting paid, uh-huh. um, and I guess, um, I, 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 I think it's racial, certainly, not necessarily racist, the way that this character was personified and just, just yeah. kind of lots of entertainment I- of the era.
0: Right. You know, I keep thinking of Parker as a character who in less skilled hands would have been much more of that racist stereotype Mm -hmm. and maybe skirts the line of it like he almost is, but he's just a little more well embodied by... Yafet Kodo to be a real person as opposed to just this trope. I agree with that. He he you know, he he gets past it. But there he's someone who there's clearly a danger of him turning into that. And mm-hmm. I don't think he does, but I see what you're saying, definitely. And again, worse filmmakers he probably would be. That's right. Yeah. I guess it's similar to Lambert, you know? Yeah. And it, her, The risk of her just being the woman. But um Again, I think her behavior is pretty natural to a real well-designed character as well. Um, they decide to blow up the ship and they split up again. <laughs> Always a good idea. Not a. Why did they split up? There's really no reason to. I know they want to get the fuck out of there as fast as they can, but you got to live to see it. You know? Right. <clears throat> and also before they start the countdown, there's really no countdown clock to compel them to do that. So I don't know. But Ripley's got to get that fucking cat, so oh, off she goes. Cat. There's got to be so much cat hair in the equipment of that oh, ship. I know. I mean... Just being recycled endlessly through those vents over and over again. I hope no one was allergic. They die. Uh, Parker and Lambert finally die. Yeah. We'll talk about the sexual undertones of the alien... In a little bit, but I do feel like I should point out that Lambert's death in particular is a little sexualized, both in the way the alien's tail kind of wraps around her and starts moving up her leg, Mm -hmm. and then the uh, the sounds she makes over the intercom as she's dying. It sounds a little, I don't want to say like a rape, but it's a bit more maybe prolonged than the other deaths, which are just a scream.
1: It's certainly reveling in pain her pain and the gendered nature of that pain
0: yeah yeah so they decide to blow up the ship and of course the moment you set the self-destruct the ship has to make it all smoky for you to heighten the uh, heighten More your anxiety does it do it. yeah there's I think it's because uh, they're blowing it by turning off the cooling system and making it overheat and that's mm-hmm. the, a venting process but it certainly uh, helps with the visual aesthetic of the film along the way just uh, Added conveniently bonus. Yeah. yes hmm. Makes it easier for the alien to hide uh, and Ripley can't get on the ship because the alien is standing basically in the doorway and she doesn't turn off the self-destruct in time and that's where we get the final complete arc of the breakdown of Ripley's cool. She goes from ice cold to the freaking out mother you bitch yeah. smashing it and she's just completely lost it at this point. She races back, but she gets on the ship. That countdown is really... I was super tense even after having seen this film like 50 times. Mm -hmm. The way that scene unfolds. It's a very intense scene. And again, with her trying to escape on the shuttle, just how big the Nostromo is, there's that countdown and the ship just keeps fucking going. And you're like, and and where's the end of the ship? Oh my God, are you going to get away? But she does. And we get that fourth act. Uh, We also both felt that... um, Speaking of gendered stuff, Ripley's a little sexualized there, right at the end, just a little bit. And she hasn't been at all. Her gender has not come into it in that way, right up until the last scene. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I was all right with it. She's very attractive.
1: And this is one thing that I didn't, I don't think, remembered to talk about um, before we watched the movie, but. I think that this was a that was a big scene for people who were, you know, in puberty or adolescence or young adulthood when that movie came out. So mm. people who are maybe a generation or a half generation older than us would talk about Sigourney Weaver and there was kind of like this this reference point that was that scene. And and I you know never quite understood it or never quite understood why, you know, some people would talk about her as being you know the uh, a sex symbol a sex symbol that's the right word right
0: yeah um I, I this is something I got to when talking to Aaron about Ghostbusters which is that I also never really saw her in that way except for maybe in Ghostbusters but I, I was forgetting this scene because there was this too
1: and it's right out there it's it's felt very seventies it's you know yeah, it nothing's does. airbrushed that's just her out there She's very hot, skimply dressed and cannot deny that that is a sexualized and sexy scene yeah
0: yeah um. I also think that it's incredibly effective that they included it as this well done one last scare. Like I think maybe audiences were expecting that this is just the denouement where she's getting ready to hop in the thing mm-hmm. that probably caught a lot of people off guard at the time. Yeah, yeah. And it's so much better that they do it that way instead of having it just kill her. That would have been such a bummer of an ending. I agree. I'm actually I'm very happy that she's alive. I also note that uh, she leaves Jonesy behind to be killed by the alien, but it chooses not to kill Jonesy. Hmm. And as far as I know, the alien has killed a lot of different animals, including depending on what version of what film you're watching. It's killed an ox, a dog, lots of humans, lots of predators, As far as I know, the alien has never killed a cat.
1: So now you've got me thinking about this theory here where the alien is just a highly evolved version of a cat. It makes a little bit of sense, doesn't it? The way he calls it the perfect predator, and... Cats are ruthless predators.
0: They're... Vicious animals. They're vicious. They're sadistic. And they're Uh, disgusting in a lot of similar ways to the alien.
1: uh, That may be true. Yeah. So I think you're really onto something. When you see... um, Harry Dean Stanton, Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. When you see Harry Dean Stanton's death scene, there's a reaction shot of the cat and the cat is just so cold. Just, there's no sympathy. There's no empathy in a cat.
0: It hisses at the alien once and appears to be afraid of it. But once it's clear that it's just going to eat Harry Dean Stanton, it does that cold cat thing where it just watches what happens completely dispassionately. (laughs) So anyway, Ripley blows the fucking thing out of the airlock and that is the end of Alien. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about some other stuff. One, I want to circle back to the creature effects a little bit. We talked about H.R. Geiger and Necronomicon Four or Necronom Four. I also want to toss out that uh, so during the chest burst scene, uh, one fun story about that is that the cast was not informed ahead of time exactly what was going to happen. They knew that this is going to be a scene where the creature appears and that it would come out of John Hurt, but they weren't told that there would be blood or mm. those high-pressure squibs, and they had never seen it, what it looked like before. And they did it all in this kind of one unbroken take, so I don't know if you noticed, there's a pretty crazy shot where the blood hits Lambert right in the face. <laughs> yeah. No one was expecting that and all of the reactions, like her kind of her audio reaction is sort of the dominant one in that scene. All mm-hmm. of that's kind of real. She's actually sort of freaking out by how messed up what's happening is, because no one was really expecting it to be quite so intense as I'm, it was. I'm
1: I'm, I'm I, I like hearing you say that because one thing that I mean, I thought that scene was fantastic, and particularly that the blood splashed spat- her specifically, so badly um i don't I thought, think
0: that was deliberate
1: and i thought it I know, was which sexual didn't, yes yeah so if it if it had been deliberate and we're talking a lot about sort of um 40 years in the future looking at gender politics and the way these things are represented but um
0: in this one specific case it's just a it, happenstance it, it's
1: just happenstance but i think it worked really well um oh yeah definitely and i appreciated it more now that i don't also have to apologize internally wow. for, for the motivations behind why yeah. they chose to do it that way because you're glad to it hear it. it makes you feel better about it. Yeah, yeah
0: totally. Um although uh you were talking about how sexual and sexualized this thing is the uh the alien goop, like that's all over the adult alien. Oh yeah. It's KY baby. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's how they did that. So uh, that's there's, gross. There's your sexual. Yeah, it's gonna make you think next time you use that stuff um and i also just want to throw out this one observation that robert ebert made which is um alien uses a tricky device to keep the alien fresh throughout the movie it evolves the nature and appearance of the creature so we never know quite what it looks like or what it can do yeah i'd never thought of that until i read that but it is totally true and is brilliant yeah makes a lot of sense and it goes to that um that idea of the uh Do you show it or do you not show it thing where you can show it and then maybe that, you know, once you've finally shown the monster, it loses some of its power, but not if it keeps changing into something else. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of analysis. We've talked about it in passing, but just to get into it, this movie has some pretty strong sexual themes. There's the phallic nature of the chestburster alien Mm -hmm. and the xenomorph's head and its second mouth. And there are pretty clearly some strong themes in this movie around oral rape, male rape, and pregnancy, particular particularly male anxieties about pregnancy. Mm. Um, Dan O'Bannon described it as deliberately wanting it to be a counter to what was back then a trendy horror film trope, which was to have sexually vulnerable women be the victims and particularly attacked by male monsters. So thankfully, because of Alien, we've moved past that. But, um, you know, that was mm-hmm. behind some of the ideas for the Alien. Just thought I'd throw that out there. How do you think this movie did? It had a budget of 9 To $11 million, what do you think it grossed? $75 million. Even more. So it grossed just under $81 million in the U.S. alone. And ultimately, its worldwide gross has been a little unclear, but they think it's between $100 and $200 million, give or take. However, 20th Century Fox um, did some weird, shady shit with the box office results of this movie because they wanted to... I guess, not pay the other production company, uh, Brandywine Productions. So they cooked the books a little bit and said that they'd actually lost money on this movie, which everyone was like, clearly that's not the case. This is a huge hit. Yeah. And it was seen as like a classic example of like Hollywood corruption and like book cooking. Uh, There was a lawsuit, got settled, and eventually we got the other movies. But I thought that was interesting. The movie was nominated for two Oscars, Best Art Direction, and Best Visual Effects, which it won the latter. hmm I mean, rightly so, yeah, I think handedly, we can say. sure. For the reviews, it has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, for reviews back then, initially, uh, the reviews were actually kind of mixed. People who liked sci-fi tended to like it, but some of the more prominent critics didn't really get it at first. Leonard Maltin didn't care for it, later came around on it. Siskel and Ebert didn't really like it. Ebert said it's basically just an intergalactic haunted house thriller inside a spaceship. But uh, he later also came around on it. One other negative review I want to toss out. Time Out Magazine said it was an empty bag of tricks whose production values and expensive trickery cannot disguise imaginative poverty. Great sentence. That review doesn't age very well.
1: No, no, it doesn't.
0: Now, nowadays... Obviously, people think this is a freaking classic. Uh, Josh Larson from Film Spotting says Alien is on a par with a genre masterpiece such as Jaws. The craftsmanship is that sound, the inventiveness that clever, the characterization that strong. And there is the not small matter of Alien being a seminal feminist action flick. According to Wikipedia, the crew was originally designed as unisex with all the parts interchangeable for men and women. Uh, According to that book, shock value, though, um, Ripley was originally a guy, and all the characters were male, and a producer changed her to being a female. But that's um, definitely part of the kind of reputation of this movie, is that maybe, I mean, to a certain extent, it's considered a feminist film. Ripley is definitely ranked way up there as, like, a strong female role, Mm -hmm. an early example of it, and a female action icon. Yeah. So... You know, I think that's a cool thing about this film.
1: I thought so as well, and it occurred to me often watching it, and I think part of what I said before we watched it was that I had it lumped in my mind together, and I think in a lot of ways that makes sense, with, you know, kind of 80s, muscle-bound, uh, uh, male-oriented movies. Yeah. And the fact that <clears throat> the fact that she was just matter-of-factly, as, as Josh Larson said, um that character and reacted in that way and they weren't trying to underline it it didn't seem on the nose like they were making a
0: feminist point no, but it I...
1: just happened effortlessly because of the direction because of the way that um that Sigourney Weaver played the character
0: yeah and i think it's cool too that at the beginning of the film it's not really clear who the hero is going to be that's true yeah nowadays with the quote unquote final girl she's like marked from the beginning as like this is our main character but at the start of alien you are not clear on who the last person standing is going to be at all it, hap- it just kind of emerges slowly over the course of the film.
1: That's completely true. And so if you had, you'd imagine if you saw the movie like maybe you experienced it or the people who saw it originally, um, when I – obviously, I knew it was going to be Sigourney Weaver the yeah. whole movie. But what you said earlier – um about her not even really being a known name at the time so there's no reason you would expect her to be that um so it kind of would keep you guessing and and you know that would be a reveal at the end which would be really kind of fascinating to see play out
0: yeah and it raises the tension of the film too because there's no one who you just like know is gonna survive right yeah i mean there are some people i knew were gonna die (laughs) (laughs) fair fair uh so uh the writer dan o'bannon said that he uh Deliberately wanted to break what was already back then becoming a horror cliche, partly in Due to Halloween by Mm -hmm. John Carpenter, which was having the victim in a horror film always be a woman was a cheap shot. I always imagined the director jerking off. I want to see a man get it because I knew it would make the men uneasy, which is, you know, coming back to to all those themes of like male sexual assault and male pregnancy, which men don't like to think about at least speaking for myself anyway you know
1: that makes me actually think that that Bakaki ash was somewhat oh. more deliberate than probably he would ever I, admit to
0: wow i didn't think about that maybe you're right i'll have to i'll have to do some more research on that although i i want to toss out though that uh, obannon did fail in one regard which is that uh, this movie along with halloween went a long way towards establishing the final girl trope I mean, Ripley is considered a a final girl, even if she is a slightly more badass version of. it. Yeah. One last quote I liked when looking at critical evaluations of this movie comes from Keith Phipps, who is then writing for the A.V. Club. He said Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey and Ridley Scott's Alien bookend a decade of space themed films and the distance between them is telling. Released a year before the lunar landing, 2001 looked to the stars with an almost religious sense of optimism. At the end of the decade, after Star Wars, Close Encounters, and others, 1979's Alien suggested another view of space. It could suck!
1: I love that, and I never thought about before, and maybe I knew it at some time, but... I don't think I knew that uh, 2001 came out before the lunar landing. That's actually just kind of a fascinating thing to...
0: Isn't it? To, yeah. To,
1: to, to realize. And then just talking about those two movies kind of bookending a decade is very interesting in a decade, an era of cinema. And I think we've talked a little bit, uh, there were a few deliberate um, shout-outs to 2001, I think, in oh, Alien. Yeah. So.
0: Well, we, we mentioned in some of our discussion about the design elements Mm -hmm. between the two movies being kind of reflective of each other, but their philosophies are too, where you've got, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the two visions of the future, where one is pristine and utopian in 2001, and it's all about humanity's potential and what we can accomplish. And then there's the shitty lived in and potentially horrifying, scary space concept that you get from Alien. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the legacy a little bit. This movie resulted in three direct sequels: Aliens, Alien 3, and Alien Resurrection. There are also two spin-off series, Alien vs Predator and Alien vs Predator Requiem. And then of course is the prequels that actually brought back Rid- Ridley Scott, which is Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Mhm. The alien has been referred to as one of the most iconic movie monsters in film history, and its appearance and sexual overtones are frequently noted. Mm-hmm. The chest burst scene is often called one of the most memorable moments in cinema history. Mm-hmm. And I think, as we talked about, it lived up to that. This movie is sometimes considered a prototype for the slasher film genre. Came out in close proximity to Halloween and Mm -hmm. helped establish a lot of those tropes. Also in close proximity with um, Jaws, which came out uh, four years before this. And kind of, you know, the burgeoning monster movie Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. genre. AFI ranks Alien as the seventh best film in the sci-fi genre. And uh, according to Empire Magazine, this is number 33 on its list of the 500 greatest movies of all time. Movie's well thought of. People like it. Yes. But will, what do you think of the movie
1: Alien? I think it's great, and I think it's very interesting that how it's aged, and we, you talked about this a little bit. But I think that happens with you know genre movies or you know movies that 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 live in that that world that aren't. Well I'll just leave it there at genre movies and I think you're seeing that maybe more recently with a movie like Get Out which did something brilliant in the horror genre.
0: And let it break out into a more mainstream audience. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think that even though that film was very well received I think that in the decades from now, it's going to be seen. And, and I think alien has the same thing where it's, it was nominated for a couple Oscars, you know, obviously it won one very well-deserved one. But if you think about the other movies of 1979 and probably the ones that were the critical darlings of that year, um, alien was probably not among them. However, nowadays it's, it clearly stands out as if not the movie of that year, certainly you know one of the top
0: oh yeah of that whole era i mean yes like get out it transcends genre yes uh, genre actually it transcends two genres that are usually uh kind of ghettoized as their own not very well respected thing which is science fiction and horror occasionally you get those movies that break out of that like you know get out for horror movies or lord of the rings for a a, a fantasy i guess or epic adventure right but um Alien, like, blows those categories away. It is just a, a quote, great film, period, stop. There are no qualifiers yeah. for genre, Yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, in that case, Will, I think I know what the answer is going to be, but let's just make it official. Was this movie better late or never? Better late. Buck? Yeah, it was. Dude, this was really fun. I enjoyed watching this with you. Um, if you're interested, you want to come back and do Aliens? Yes,
1: I would love to do Aliens. Well,
0: let's fucking do it. All, All right. right. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can email us at pod at gmail.com or you can tweet us at betterlate underscore pod. One last time, Will. Great having you on, and I look forward to having you back. Thank you, Dave. You too. Peace. Out. He said, From the bark, you (laughs) dumbass! From the (laughs) (laughs) bark! Is he alright? Yeah, yeah. the guy digs me! (laughs) Hey, what's (laughs) wrong with this guy? I don't know! (laughs) Bring him some water! Water my ass! Bring this guy some Pepto Bismol! Waitress! Waitress! What did he order? Oh, he had a special. (laughs) That's what I ordered! I changed my order to the soup! Good move. Oh, no! Not again! Honey, hello, my ragtime gal Send me a kiss, by wire. Baby, my heart's on fire
1: If you refuse me, honey, you'll lose me Then you'll be left alone Oh, baby, telephone oh, And tell me I'm your own